You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 444 of this podcast. Today, we are going to talk about a tale of two rivers, kind of like a tale of two cities, but instead of cities, rivers, uh, obviously, it would be weird if I said a tale of two rivers, and then we talked about a tale of two cities, so we won't, but I read two articles this past week about management of water and engineering projects with regards to the management of water in the U.S. And I have some thoughts, and we will get into that in just a minute, more about how the Colorado River is uh, maybe running out of water and how the Mississippi River is... uh, eroding land. They're running out of land, actually, (laughs) over there. We're running out of water over here. Uh, But first, I want to talk about, briefly, a piece in the Denver Post titled, Colorado Women Can Face Pushback When Seeking Sterilization Surgery. Quote, it's very demeaning, end quote. The subtitle reads, more people are seeking permanent contraception after the fall of Roe v. Wade. Doctors Say And there's a young woman, 21-year-old Zoe Schacht, pictured in front of her father's home in Westminster on Thursday, July 28th. Doctors have told Schacht, according to the caption here, who has endometriosis, that she is too young to decide to have a hysterectomy. She's 21. She's too young to decide whether to have a hysterectomy. And this really does introduce a question, right? (laughs) As you read through this article, and uh, I'll I'll give you uh, a little bit more of a summary, you'll find again and again, you've got stories of men and women who've decided that they don't ever want to have children. They don't now, and they never will. They don't want to have children right now, and They are not willing to ever change their mind in the future. They will never change their mind in the future. But then you have doctors, meanwhile, they're going to saying, I want a vasectomy. I want a hysterectomy. Doctors pushing back and saying, well, you're so young. What if you change your mind? And what would be really interesting would be to go and talk with the doctors who are getting such an influx, right? Denver Post, What about the doctors who are seeing such an influx and how do they view this? Are they disturbed by it? I mean, the whole premise of this 
Denver Post article is that there's nothing whatsoever untoward about young men and young young women uh, having their reproductive organs electively removed in large numbers. There's a statistic cited here, upwards of 30% of young adults are electing for sterilization as their means of birth control. They don't want to get pregnant if they are women. They also don't want to get a woman pregnant if they are men. But <laughs> there is another option. There, there is another option. Namely, you could just stop having sex. That's also an option if you don't want to get pregnant. Unless you're the Virgin Mary, in which case God had other plans there. and She was a virgin and God decided, well, you're just going to be the uh, mother of the Messiah, the incarnated son of God. Unless you are the Virgin Mary, there is really only one way for you to get pregnant. Uh, you know, barring some kind of, uh, you know, lab somewhere, artificially implanting a fertilized egg in your womb, you're going to be having sex and that's how you're going to get pregnant or you're going to be having sex and you're going to get some woman pregnant. And if that's not what you want, you don't want to get some woman pregnant or you don't want to get pregnant by some man, then just don't do it. Plain and simple. It's as easy as that. Now, of course, we have the immediate pushback. Well, how dare you? It's not any of your business what I do. Well, it is God's business though. See, that's the trouble. We think we belong to ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. If we only belonged to ourselves, then you would be right. You would be correct to say it really is your choice what you do with your body. And yet we belong to God. God made us and it's to him we must give an account for how we steward what it is that he entrusts to us. That includes our physical bodies, yes. Not just, it also includes all of the resources and opportunities and relationships and the time that he's given us. But insofar as he's given us abilities, what is driving this push to remove organs, remove the function of organs so that we don't have children? Is that coming from the Lord? Is that coming from God's word in any measure at all? You know, someone will say, Maybe, possibly. <laughs> Just I'm trying to come up with something, some some excuse, some justification that a contemporary Christian in the mainstream might make. And they, they might say, Well, you know, Jesus says if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out and throw it away. Cast it into the fire. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to go into heaven with one hand than go to hell with two. But that is about as close as I can get to thinking of any excuse whatsoever for getting an elective surgery to remove your reproductive organs just because you don't want to have children. It's an ungodly attitude towards children. It's an ungodly attitude towards yourself. It's an ungodly attitude towards God. You have not been transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. And if you make no claims to Christianity, well, then I suppose then I, I suppose it's par for the course. But you know, here's where I think a lot of individualists and a lot of libertarians might get a little lost because I would criticize this openly, even if you're a non-Christian. 
And I would caution, I would warn. I'm not angry with some young woman, some young man who's going to get themselves sterilized so that they don't have children. I'm not angry with them, first and foremost. But I would ask, who informed your way of thinking? Who informed your attitude? And is that a healthy and true and good attitude and way of thinking about having children? If you believe that everything is coming to an end in 12 years or whatever the latest uh, estimate for the apocalypse is from AOC, if you believe that the world is coming to an end in 12 years, then what difference does it make whether you have children or you don't? If you believe that the sky is falling because we're burning fossil fuels, we've got too many people who are consuming and producing and filling up the earth and subduing it, being fruitful and multiplying, well then, if it's just a foregone conclusion anyways, what do you think you not having children is going to do about it? Also, for that matter, if you actually look at the statistics, and this is a point Elon Musk has made, I think, compellingly, if you actually look at the statistics, we are not in danger of overpopulating. We are actually in very much a danger of population collapse and civilizational collapse. Look at the stats and don't look at the stats from climatologists and environmentalists and big government types and globalists who just want you to cede ever more power over your own life. I mean, here's the irony, the bitter irony here. And this is where I caution. I feel a a pity for those who have been so brainwashed by the public schools and by the mainstream media and by leftist politicians and radical environmentalists, radical leftists. The bitter irony (laughs) is that you take umbrage at a doctor even asking you, are you sure you want to do that? how dare you impose yourself on my will? How dare you second guess me? But you don't take umbrage at someone saying that essentially for you to have children, it would be like spreading a disease. Really? Like which of those two is more insulting? A doctor saying, oh, hey, you might someday with your husband want to have children. And if you have your organs removed now, you won't be able to have children with your husband someday. You won't be able to change your mind. Or B, <laughs> for you to reproduce would just be awful for the planet. It would just be off. It would just be bad. Like to my mind, the second of those is infinitely more insulting and degrading and damaging. But the trouble here is we have a godlessness and a futility of thinking with regards to having children, with regards to reproduction, with regards to sex and relationship, and with regards to the way we view ourselves. We think that we belong to ourselves, and we have all of these influences, all of these voices, all of these images, all of these sales pitches telling us from little on up, apart from God, apart from the grace of God saving us from this, that it's all about us. Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can, and that's life. It is all material. It is all physical. It is all enjoyment. That ain't so, and it's very unsatisfying. And if you are unsatisfied with that, maybe the solution is not to suppose, well, I just shouldn't bring any more people into the world. It's awful. Maybe the solution is to come up with a better worldview. Maybe 
to find the truth, maybe to focus on what is true instead of the lie you've been sold for others to enslave you. Just saying. And oh, by the way, as for the insinuation of this Denver Post piece saying that women especially can face pushback, can I just point out that a hysterectomy is not the same thing as a vasectomy? Okay, vasectomies can be reversed. So far as I know, hysterectomies can't be reversed. I mean, they're not going to take your uterus and, uh, you know, put it on ice indefinitely in case you want them to put it back in and reattach everything. And, you know, it just doesn't work that way. As I understand it, vasectomies can be reversed. And sometimes vasectomies don't even make a difference. They don't even stop uh, a man from impregnating a woman. So, you know, there's a there's a big difference here for doctors to be cautioning young women, especially about being over hasty and getting a hysterectomy is kind of a big deal. Also, too, once again, as I always say when I'm talking about this subject, check out Edwin Black's War Against the Weak. For a hundred years, the richest, most powerful, most arrogant, egotistical, self-impressed men in the U.S. and other developed nations have had it stuck in their heads that they can play God and that they should regard the poor and the lower class, especially white trash as they regard them, or minorities as essentially mere mortals in comparison to their godlike wealth and power. And the eugenics movement for a time, about a century ago, was forcibly sterilizing men and women who were deemed unfit to reproduce. And now I think the game has changed. In the past 80 years, the game has changed to where instead of arresting people, detaining them, sedating them, and giving them a hysterectomy or a vasectomy against their will, we've got all these influences brainwashing them via pop culture and the education system. We have all these influences brainwashing people into doing it to themselves. And it's still wicked. It's it's evil. I hate, I hate, hate, hate that these young people have been brainwashed into this by very arrogant men who suppose themselves to be gods. That, to my mind, is the far greater insult and umbrage and infringement on your personhood. A doctor saying, are you sure about that? No, you're not being oppressed. Just stop. Just stop. (laughs) But moving on, I've got two articles I want to talk about uh, more on the question of uh, river water, actually, and drinking water and agriculture and industry and fishing and land use and all the rest. Uh, two rivers are having a little bit of uh, trouble. One being the Mississippi River, the other being the Colorado River. And the first article I read actually was republished in the Greeley Tribune. It was a piece by Conrad Swanson from the Denver Post titled, The West's Most Important Water Supply is Drying Up Soon. 
life for 40 million people who depend on the Colorado River will change. And then the subtitle is a quote from the general manager of the Colorado River District, who says, we thought we could engineer nature. Huge mistake. Now, it's interesting to me that the general manager of the Colorado River District is saying, we thought we could engineer nature. Um, Isn't that your job, right? Like, you should apparently resign and step down and just... uh, (laughs) Pack it up, go home, find something else to do because uh, I was under the impression that that was your job, actually, to engineer nature. But, you know, I'm, <laughs> I read through this. You know, this article was just published, uh, you know, a little over a week ago, July 25th. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, There may be a problem here that is due to man's hubris, right? It could be that for the past hundred years, we have been overestimating our ability to harness the Colorado River, for instance. You build a dam, you start encouraging people to settle, to build cities, to plant farms, to start ranches, you then find out that there's a little bit more to the climate of the region than the assumptions you held at the outset. But then the people just keep coming and they keep using more and more water. And at a certain point, by all means, go back and double check your math or update your estimates. Sure. You know, we thought we could engineer nature, huge mistake. Well, the problem is you you can, right? But it's like any kind of engineering. If you assume a certain infallibility on the front end, you're going to be very uh, badly surprised because we are not infinite creatures. We don't have infinite knowledge, wisdom, power. We are finite creatures. We are fallible creatures. We know in part. Sometimes you get ambitious individuals who overstate their knowledge and they overstate their ability, and they overawe folks who are not quite so confident. And the thought (laughs) that that occurred here with regards to engineering projects on the Colorado River is, uh, you know, it, it, it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't surprise me. I'll put it that way. Now, the trouble is, to my way of thinking, not just with this piece, but also with the article regarding the Mississippi River, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. The trouble is, when you realize that happened before, are you thinking broadly enough about how that might be happening right now again and what it looks like this time? You know, namely, you know, I copy-pasted this Denver Post article into a Word document. I did the same thing with the article about the Mississippi River by Boyce Upholt, the controversial plan to unleash the Mississippi. I did a keyword search for this piece in the Denver Post, and I looked up a couple of terms. 
one, climate scientist, and then also just climate in general. So a certain Brad Udall is a water and climate scientist who is quoted several times repeatedly. There's also references to the fact that our climate is changing, and they don't make maybe a huge overt point about climate change, but they do say, or rather the author of this piece, uh, a certain Conrad Swanson, he does say climate change is speeding up the damage, making it permanent. And there he's quoting Udall. You know, they're talking about how there was a drought at the turn of the century and it's still going on. And now we're going to call it a mega drought and it's expected not just to continue on as it is, but to get worse. And then this Udall climate scientist uh, character, Brad Udall, water and climate scientist, tells us that climate change is speeding up the damage, making it permanent. There's a certain Mueller who is quoted here as well, referenced, as saying that the change in heat is just killing this river. So we've got increased heat, and that is causing less water to make it all the way to the terminus where we had this big reservoir at Lake Powell. And a lot of that water is just evaporating before it gets there. And so the overall level in the reservoir at Lake Powell is decreasing. Mueller, by the way, is the general manager for the Colorado River District. Andy Mueller. That is the same one who said, we thought we could engineer nature. Huge mistake. Now, the trouble here is, it's like, okay, you guys are telling us you can't engineer nature on the scale of the Colorado River. Uh, You know, seven states depend on waters from the Colorado River and reservoirs that are filled by the Colorado River. And you're telling us, you can't engineer nature, right? You can't do it. You know, farming is talked about here. Ranching is talked about here. People uh, watering their lawns and their grass is talked about here. Where we're talking about higher temperatures, we're talking about climate change driving this in some sense. Uh, You know, you're talking about global climate change. When you say climate change, I assume you're talking about global climate change. Maybe that's a faulty assumption. You're just talking about localized climate change. But if you're talking about more globalized, a regional mega drought that is related to global climate change, where do you stand on the burning of fossil fuels? And what are we to take away from your prescription? What is your prescription, right? If it's just be afraid, be very afraid. We thought we could engineer nature, but that was a huge mistake. And there's nothing to be done about it except to use less water. This sounds to me like it's of a piece with the push for reducing Earth's population, reducing the consumption of Western nations in particular, reducing the overall population of planet Earth. That is inherent to calls to produce less food, you know, less farming. That, that's a way to use less water. Less ranching, that's a way to use less water. But then also, too, a necessary consequence of that is less people 
if you're growing less food, then you must needs be have fewer people. You know, so to leave it ambiguous, uh, knowing what I do about the larger debate on climate change uh, is rather ominous. Also, too, uh, my concern with this whole piece as a layperson, not as a trained scientist in climate change and water science, my concern as a layperson reading this is you, you know, if you are uh, all swept up in the drive to combat global climate change, my question would be, if you didn't have it all figured out, uh, or, or your predecessors a hundred years ago didn't have it all figured out trying to engineer the Colorado River, what makes you think we should trust you <laughs> to engineer the whole planet's climate? <laughs> if your models and your assumptions were faulty, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, and you're also kind of shrugging like, well, we don't really know what to do about it here in this region. Why should we trust your prescription in terms of where the whole planet is headed? You know, this is to say nothing about, for this episode at least, the way that solar activity influences the heating and cooling of the planet, weather patterns, jet streams, you know, where the rain goes, where it falls. Uh, is complicated when we're looking at the sun having increased or decreased activity and that being something that we don't control. That's something God has uh, the thermostat for, but we don't control. It feels a little bit like you are uh, playing Professor Harold Hill, uh, who was a con artist in The Music Man. You know, you come to town you tell us we've got trouble right here in River City and you present yourself, you put yourself forward as a kind of community organizer. You're going to start up a marching band for the kids in town to get them to stop playing uh, pool. And then you will take everyone's money and skip town and you'll go on to the next and do it again. All the while, Yes, maybe we had some real issues here, but what was driving those real issues was not what you said was driving those real issues. And maybe those real issues were not as dire as you were making things out to be. And also, all the while, there's an opportunity cost to us curling up into the fetal position about your doom and gloom predictions. I mean, for one, that's a really stressful way to live, and no wonder people are getting vasectomies and hysterectomies if they listen to you, but so also <laughs> every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, we pour our research grants and our tax dollars and our time and our attention and our mental energy into your doom and gloom is a minute, hour, day, week, month, year. We are not pouring our attention into coming up with actual solutions to the problem. You know, let's get rid of people. Let's reduce the head count. For one, ew, that's sinister. I've read this one. I, I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. <laughs> but also for two, why are you not focusing your energies? Why are we not focusing our energies on increasing carrying capacity? Why are we focused on the plans 
and the mission of William Vogt instead of the mission and plans of Norman Borlaug. There's a really, really great book by Charles C. Mann. I was just recommending to my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, called The Wizard and the Prophet, about these two men. Norman Borlaug won the Nobel Peace Prize for saving a billion lives by improving the agricultural techniques of developing nations, taking more drought-resistant strains of wheat and other crops to places that didn't get enough water, don't get enough water, taking the best agricultural science to places that needed agricultural science from the U.S., by the way. And how did we develop those techniques and those methods and that science here? Because we had people focused on increasing the carrying capacity, people like Norman Borlaug. But then you get William Vogt, and his approach is exactly the opposite. He's working from a Malthusian assumption that the planet has a fixed, finite carrying capacity. And as we approach that carrying capacity, what's needed is fewer mouths to feed. His view of what needed to be done was of a piece with Margaret Sanger and the eugenics movement and Planned Parenthood and the Birth Control League and the sexual revolution. Let's reduce the headcount. Let's promote sterilization, either strongly encouraged or else coerced in some quarters. Let's promote a one-child policy. Let's encourage people to get abortions. Let's encourage people to have fewer children. As a way of encouraging people to have fewer children, we will incentivize or else penalize by turn the course of action that we desire. And so he goes around to countries that aspire to be wealthy and prosperous, like the U.S. was at that time. And he says, ah, you want, you want to have more wealth per capita, have fewer per capita. Simple. Get your people to stop having babies. Now, he was coming from a very troubled home. No wonder he had the bleak perspective that he did. But these are two very, very opposite ways to approach it. One says, it's all awful. And lo and behold, that that becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And actually, I think this does relate to some extent to our episode from yesterday about anger and anxiety and fear and what we're supposed to do with those as Christians. These things go back and forth, especially where we have options as lay people reading articles like this one in the Denver Post to either be conformed to the pattern of this world being communicated here or be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. What does God's word say? He sends his reins on the just and the unjust. So don't go thinking as a Christian, people are awful and like Jonah, I'm going to be angry if there is a turning from sin and a repentance and a revival and God spares Nineveh. Also, if we turn from our sins and we repent, if his people who are called by his name turn and repent, he will hear them from heaven and turn his wrath away from them and he will heal their land. What if central to the problem we have here is that 
we have turned from God. We have a spiritual condition that in part finds expression in the kinds of assumptions we make and the ways that we allow ourselves to uncritically follow, um, you know, very forceful personalities who put themselves forward as the solution. You know, we have a desire and a hunger and a thirst for their leadership in part because we're not going to God for leadership in part because we are anxious and fearful in expectation of judgment because we're unrepentant in our sins. And then we see judgment coming and we see distraction coming always at all times. We know it's coming. We sense it. We feel it in our bones. And again, still rather than turning from our sins, we fatalistically embrace that that is just what it's going to be. Well, it's going to be that because we're unrepentant. God has his hand on the thermostat. We don't get to adjust the sundial, if you will. (laughs) You know, I've got a poster actually on my wall from National Geographic titled The Sun. It's right here next to my desk. And some of the graphs and some of the charts show what solar activity has been like over past decades, in recent decades. And there is a up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down to the cycles. And here's the thing, whether we can measure and quantify that and record that and chart that is a separate piece from whether we can control that. But God can control that. And he does. He's sovereign over that. In fact, it's preordained, it's foreordained that this is what it will do. And so then the question is not, how do we harness that process or how do we give up on life if we can't control that? If we, in fact, don't turn out to be the gods uh, we thought we were and we just give up on life because our whole life was predicated on us being the center of the universe and us being the supreme being. The question is, will we regard God as holy? Will we worship God in spirit and in truth? Will we do with all our strength whatever our hand finds to do, as unto the Lord? Uh, you know, I'll note also here, again, speaking as a layperson, but I think the lay people need to talk back to the newspapermen and the climate scientists and the policymakers. I read here, grocery bills have already increased as farmers face tighter water budgets. Agriculture consumes the vast majority of Colorado river water across the basin. So policymakers see the industry as an obvious target for conservation efforts. Shields alludes to a hypothetical $14 head of lettuce and said that whatever cuts farmers face will ultimately result in more expensive or harder to find fruits and vegetables. Absolutely. But I look at this article and I'm thinking to myself that it's odd how often I see in this piece and in the other piece about the Mississippi River, these oddly inserted references to the Native American tribes and their need for greater representation. And what I don't mean with that little sidebar comment and observation is that the Native Americans should have no representation. How dare you criticize that? Of course they should have representation, Garrett. Well, settle down here, okay? Listen, the point is not whether or not Native American tribes should have this or that share of say-so in the discussion. 
the issue is we're talking about people not being able to buy food, not being able to grow food, not being able to afford to buy food. And as a layperson, I'm looking at this article and I'm seeing a lot of climate change hysteria and I'm seeing a push for social justice. And I'm thinking to myself, again, regarding opportunity cost, every minute, hour, day, week, month, year, you are embroiling us in these conflicts about social justice and about globalized climate change. That is time and energy that we are not spending on coming up with practical solutions that would be good for all of us. We're going to argue about whether there are enough Native American representatives at the table or whether we should just give everything back to them. Really? Like, that's what you want to talk about right this instant? <laughs> like, which is it? Like, I, I, I find myself <laughs> feeling like you're undermining the sense of urgency in your reader because obviously things are not quite so dire if we've got time to quibble about social justice right now. Or you are just that committed to social justice. You would rather have social justice than us all be able to afford to buy food or for farmers to afford to be able to stay in business. And, you know, it would be one thing if this were only happening with regards to Native American tribes. When I think back to 2017, July 7th, 2017, to be more exact, I wrote an open letter to the senators and congressmen of Montana and North Dakota, an open letter at On The Rock's blog. And in that open letter, I was pleading with our representatives in the legislature to speak up on behalf of plans and efforts by environmentalists to protect a pallid sturgeon that didn't need protecting at the expense of farmers and ranchers I personally knew in the region who need water, they need access to water, and yet their need for water to grow crops is actually seemingly all the more fuel for radical environmentalists who hold them in contempt. You know, the conservative, Republican voting, small town values, country folk are hated by these radical environmentalists very often because they vote consistently opposite how the radical environmentalists want people to vote. And so if they're doing well and they have all this land, I think what it really boils down to is that the radical environmentalists are jealous. They're jealous and resentful. And even if a, a compelling case can't be made that this pallid sturgeon is at stake and is going to die out or go extinct or be harmed if we continue on farming in the Savage Montana area, Richland County, Dawson County, Montana area. They want to make that case. They want to argue that the federal government needs to intervene so that something they don't have, that they can't get their grubby digits on, can't get their... <laughs> can't get their hands on, they can't own themselves because they're not willing to work hard and apply themselves and change their values and priorities in life, can be taken away from somebody else who has it that they're jealous of. 
You know, so I look at <laughs> I look at the situation as it was framed in the case of that project, and then I read this scaled up issue and question of the Colorado River, and I see of I see it being of a piece with the article in the Denver Post about sterilization surgeries. I see these things as being very closely connected. It's not demeaning to a young woman to ask if she's really, really sure she wants to have her uterus removed surgically, but it is demeaning to say that for her to have children would be much like some kind of a bacteria or plague or invasive species overtaking some other environment or ecosystems, more rightful possessors, more rightful inhabitants. And yet the Denver Post piece has it just backwards. It's not a huge deal (laughs) that Native American tribes want more representation at the table in discussions about water usage and water projects and engineering of the Colorado River. That's not a big deal. Not when we're talking about people being able to afford to eat or not, or being able to find food or not, being able to farm and ranch or not. But according to the Denver Post, in their frequent references just randomly inserted, it is a big deal. In fact, it's perhaps as big or bigger of a deal. And so there's this idea, and and I think Mark Tooley actually did a great job in an interview with a certain Joshua Mitchell from Georgetown University, uh, actually also in the past week. You can check it out at providencemag.com. Mark Tooley is president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, and he is the editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. The title of the interview and article is Conservatism's Missing Protestants. And he talks here about how we still have all of this language in our political discussions in America and in the West generally, that we have borrowed from Protestant Christianity. We are still categorizing and describing things in Protestant Christian terms, and yet we can't account for it. And also, too, everybody's looking for a scapegoat. So the young woman who wants a hysterectomy because she doesn't want to ever have children, but she is not willing to choose abstinence, She is looking for a scapegoat for the way she feels embarrassed, frustrated, angry, discontented. And so the doctor who asks, are you really sure about that, is as good a scapegoat as any, especially if the doctor's a man, if the doctor's a male, if the doctor's a white, straight, Protestant male, upper middle class, it doesn't get much better than that. But she's looking for a scapegoat. She's looking for someone to put all of her sins onto so that then she doesn't have to feel any sense of fear or dread. So also, in a certain sense, you can frame the whole piece in the Denver Post in terms of the white man having incurred the judgment and wrath of planet Earth by having disenfranchised Native American tribes and not given them a seat at the table equally. It's it's implied. It's not directly stated, because of course that would be absurd, but it's implied in the way that these things are just thrown in there. And it fits an overall pattern with regards to social justice, with regards to 
the drive for Marxism on a global scale. The one world government is not going to be free market capitalistic Christian government if the mainstream media and the corporatists and the globalists and the secularists have anything to say about it. What does Native Americans having equal representation, sufficient representation, sufficient control over the Colorado River have to do with the mega drought we're in or climate change? What does it have to do with people being able to afford to buy food? Well, it's a kind of, it's a type of substitute for what historically would have been a Protestant understanding of sin and judgment. And yet, as Mark Tooley and Joshua Mitchell in their discussion point out and explore, in the Protestant Christian view of society, public life, politics, public policy, our private attitudes, the way we orient our families and our businesses and our schools and our communities and our churches, we already have a perfect scapegoat in Christ. As in, God knew that we needed a scapegoat. God knew that we needed a substitute who would take our sins outside the camp, out into the wilderness, far away from us, separating us from our sins so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God. And so also have our people and our land healed. But where in our day we have rejected Protestant Christianity, we have not similarly rejected that way of framing these issues. And so what you will find, I think, as this progresses, unless there is repentance and revival on a massive scale, what you will find is increasingly desperate efforts to find and punish scapegoats who will never be perfect. They will never be satisfying. And it'll be a bloodbath, French Revolution style. It won't be enough for the young man and the young woman to get sterilized at a certain point when the water dries up and they can't buy food. They're going to get angry and they're going to start looking for people to blame. And they won't be looking at the climate scientist first and foremost. And they won't be looking at the abortionist and they won't be looking at the Marxist first and foremost, not to blame anyway. If they don't come to Jesus, they'll be looking to those people to figure out who to blame. And so we do well (laughs) to listen closely to who those people are blaming right now. Well, they're blaming the white man. They're blaming the Christian. They're blaming the traditional family. They're blaming the people who have children, who get married, who stay faithful to the wife of their youth. They're blaming conservatives. And yet even there, conservatives having embraced the core idea of secularism, don't know how to counter that rigorously or robustly. They don't even know how to recognize it. You start describing things in terms of a competing religion on the left, and a lot of conservatives get really uncomfortable because they think we need to keep religion out of it. Ah, We need to be winsome towards those in the middle. Let's not get into that. Yeah, but if you don't get into that and that's what it is, then you will never be able to make sense of this and you will never be able to respond appropriately. That's the problem. And how much is you not getting into it worth to you? Are you so committed to not getting into that that you're willing to commit yourself to the Colorado River drying up or else farmers and ranchers and therefore 
grocery store shoppers being shut out of the decision-making process here. We're going to give Native American tribes a bigger share of representation. Farmers and ranchers were going to make just really, really brief offhanded comments about needing to consume less, use less, conserve more. Do, do pay attention to what's going on in the Netherlands with farmers. As that government has told farmers, we're going to take your lands and we're going to reduce your growing by 30%. Farmers, meanwhile, protesting and then turning to ever more desperate forms of protest, rightly ask the question, if we cut our production by 30%, won't the public have to cut its consumption by 30%? Unless that's the big idea. And increasingly, it looks like that is the big idea. Essentially, we're going to decide who gets to eat and who doesn't get to eat by reducing the supply of food and then only allowing to eat those people who have demonstrated online that they are in line with our vision of the future, of this brave new world. We'll drug the ones who are on the fence and anxious about it and depressed about it and angry about it, or else we'll cart them off to prison, or else we'll drive them out of the economy, we'll drive them out of the political process. I think it's happening before our eyes. Now, interestingly, before we get too far afield, consider also this other piece about a river, the controversial plan to unleash the Mississippi. Subtitle here, or tagline, if you will, in the article by Boyce Upholt says, our long history of constraining the river through levees has led to massive land loss in its delta. Can we engineer our way out and at what cost? Okay, so here again, we've got a piece that's less than a month old. July 12th, 2022 is when this one was published in Hakai Magazine. I think I'm saying that right. The About Us page on their website says, launched in April 2015, Hakai Magazine explores science, society, and the environment in compelling narratives that highlight coastal life around the world. Our mandate is to foster a global conversation about Coastlines, the places where much of the world's population lives. These environments filter toxins, buffer erosion, and support vibrant communities of people, plants, and animals to understand this land and seascape. People need access to accurate, unbiased, and engaging information. We practice journalism in the public interest and publish all of our stories exclusively online without paywalls or ads. The magazine is part of the Tula Foundation, an independent charitable foundation. The article starts off... (laughs) And I quote, the creation story told by the Chitimacha people in Louisiana describes the world in its earliest days as a wide expanse of water. Then the great creator instructed crawfish to dive down and bring up a bit of mud. Geologists tell a similar tale, though their sculpture is the Mississippi River. For thousands of years, it dumped soil stolen off of the continent into the Gulf of Mexico. Thus, the river formed its delta, a vast and muddy and ever-changing landscape where the water once forked into many paths to the sea. These days, though, the river is largely restricted to one channel. Imprisoned within artificial levees, it's no longer able to deposit its mud according to hydrological whim. Instead, the river spits its sediment into the abyss of the deep sea. The consequences are grim. The existing mudscape is sinking. The ocean is rising. Over the past nine decades, more than 5,000 square kilometers of Delta land in Louisiana has disappeared. Okay, so there's the framing of the problem 
again, we have a start with Native American mythology, tribes, representation. The concern for representation of Native Americans is of a piece with social justice, for better or worse. We are framing the understanding of this from the get-go along certain presuppositional lines. This is not just a question of the redistribution of water. This is also a question of the redistribution of political power, first and foremost, and don't make any mistake about it. But then what's interesting to me as a Christian is how different this article would read from here, and it's 5,300 words long, if our starting position was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If our starting position was God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's interesting to me that the comparing contrast is between Native American attitudes towards the river and mythology about the river on the one hand and modern developed scientific engineering efforts which stem from Western culture, which stem from Christian conceptions of our place in the world, our place in the universe. It's interesting to me as well. (laughs) Have you noticed how very often man is contrasted with nature as if man is not natural, as if man is unnatural, not just that he is somewhat set apart from nature, which Christians would agree with. Man is somewhat set apart from and over nature by virtue of having been created in God's image, an image bearer to exercise dominion in obedience to God in a way that brings glory to God. And yet, apart from the truth about God found in God's word, apart from the Christian worldview, what we find as Mark Tooley's discussion with the Georgetown professor is borne out in these debates and in these articles and these portrayals of the problem of one river or another, as Mark Tooley's conversation with Joshua Mitchell about scapegoats bears out in reality, we find that the increasingly popular, fashionable, du jour way of framing efforts over the past century or more to control the river flows for agriculture and industry are presented as unnatural, or perverse, not as actually an expression of the purpose for man's nature, right? So there's a nature we can describe when we're talking about a body of water. Hydrology is a science, sure. Water has certain properties, sure. There's a certain nature to the land. We can study earth science. We can study resource management. We can study agriculture as a science. And all of those things speak to a certain nature of the earth and its relationship to plant life or to animal life or to human life. But there is a nature to man as well. And what is being said about the nature of man if man's efforts to get food for himself to make it easier to transport goods and people and services and resources along bodies of water, if those efforts are presented as unnatural or perverse. 
just by virtue of being an outgrowth of human civilization, particularly Western civilization, over and against and in contrast to Native American civilization. Another couple of very interesting books to read, actually, all wrapped up with this, by Charles C. Mann, again, great historian, author, 1491 and 1493. I don't, as a matter of course, (laughs) read books more than once, typically. I have read both of those books three times now and learned new things every time. But the latest science about what the Native American peoples were doing with the landscape, with water, with resource management, with managing wildlife and plant life, and ecosystems in North America, in Central America, in South America, the latest science really does not bear out this activist, leftist, globalist, secularist agenda. And so, yes, they will tell you a myth, a creation myth from some obscure Native American tribe, which they think telling you the creation myth of will equate to greater social justice as a result of. But if you read Charles C. Mann, there's a lot of evidence that Native American peoples for thousands of years were bioengineering their environments at a high level in a big way. So this idea that some crawfish was commanded by the great spirit, the creator, to do his business, and then we get the Mississippi River, and then that's the beginning of the world as that tribe knew it, is just that. It's a story. It's like if in 2,000 years, people dug up some memorabilia from Star Wars and they said, ah, okay, these people who lived in this land believed in this thing called the Force and the dark side and the light side of the Force. And they used lightsabers to settle their disputes. They believed in these little things called midichlorians. But they lived in harmony with nature. No, of course not. What could be, actually, is that Native American peoples were bioengineering their environments at a very high level, and then they ran into similar kinds of problems as to what we're running into with some of our projects from 100 years ago. And then we start looking at, well, okay, maybe we should blow up this dam because maybe (laughs) this dam be damned. Like It's not working. It's not doing the thing that we originally built it for, and it's caused problems that we didn't expect. So let's get rid of it. No more dam. And in 2,000 years, maybe, if the Lord tarries or we continue on, if the earth stands as it is presently, and there's no evidence of the dam, or there's very, very little evidence of the dam, it'll get overlooked. And yet, it really doesn't matter to the core of what the radical environmentalists are wanting. The radical environmentalists are wanting to carry on the vision of the likes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Paine. They're wanting to carry on the vision of Margaret Sanger and Saul Alinsky, of Karl Marx, of William Vogt, of Thomas Malthus. Every generation should have the right to revolution. Let's just make it how we want it to be. At the core, you're not trying to liberate the planet. You're trying to take over the planet. At root, you're not trying to save the planet 
by not having kids, you're trying to save your time and money to spend it all on yourself because you're selfish or you're deceived. One of the two. You're deceived into believing that you are a blight and a blemish on planet Earth, that your very existence is unnatural and contrary to the good of the Earth. And apart from Christ, apart from the perfect scapegoat, apart from the substitutionary atoning work on the cross, yes, you should expect judgment, but you don't have to be apart from that atoning work of Christ. Wouldn't it be so much better to repent and turn from your sins? Wouldn't it be so much better for God to heal our land? As something of an aside, (laughs) and again, I'm speaking as a layperson, I do wonder to myself if the climate scientists and globalists and leftists and social justice warriors were more focused on coming up with actual solutions instead of just trying to define down degeneracy and redistribute wealth and power and influence. And if they were less preoccupied with looking for scapegoats and straight white Protestant men, they might take a look at the problem with the Mississippi River and the problem with the Colorado River and see if maybe (laughs) we can get some of this Mississippi River water to the Colorado region. You know, there's an idea. You got too much of it over in the Mississippi River Delta, and we don't have enough of it over here in Colorado. I don't know what that would cost, but it seems to me like with all the money we're sending overseas to other countries, if we're looking at 40 million Americans possibly running out of water, farmers and ranchers not being able to produce crops here anymore, you could look at rerouting the water from the Mississippi River and get some of that sediment over here as well. You've got opposite problems on one side of the country compared with the other. But as soon as you would suggest something like that, here's what would happen. right? And I guess I just did. But here's what would happen if people started seriously kicking around this idea. You would immediately have the folks whose presupposition is that man is unnatural and a blight and a blemish because they grew up in a troubled home where they weren't wanted and they were neglected. They would say, ah, yes, but that would really disrupt the ecosystem of the West. And that would really disrupt the ecosystem in the Mississippi River Delta. They would find some obscure little fish like the pallid sturgeon, which you've never heard of. And they would say that fish is more important to us than 40 million people having water, having food, having a reliable source of electricity or sustenance. And it really, I mean, honestly, so long as the presupposition remains intact that we hate God and we hate Western civilization because it reminds us of God, you will find, I think, that a culture of death pervades the stories about real problems to the point that the layperson reading these things, this is just dismisses you out of hand. And they say, oh, that's ridiculous. Or they say, I don't trust you, right? Even if you're right, I don't trust you. You've lost all credibility in your coverage of every other thing because your presuppositions regard me as an enemy. And I half wonder if you don't wish I would run out of food and wish I would run out of water and wish that my business would dry up. I half wonder if you don't wish 
these things you're forecasting, this doom and gloom you're predicting would come to pass. In part because then it would prove you right and you're really, really, really invested in being right. And in part because you're jealous of people who have something you don't. You resent them. You know, first it'll be the young men and young women get hysterectomies and vasectomies en masse because they've bought into the climate change nonsense. They've bought into the wealth and power redistribution scheme. They've bought into Marxism and communism. They've bought into the principles of the French Revolution. Then, when they change their mind, but they can't have kids, they're going to be like the prostitute whose baby died, who steals the other woman's baby, who steals the other prostitute's baby. And then they both come to wise King Solomon, accusing the other one of having stolen their baby or trying to steal their baby. At a certain point, you'll realize that you feel very much bitter and jealous and unsatisfied because you haven't factored God into your equation at all. And it, the equation just doesn't work when you don't. And then when it doesn't, and you're still looking for scapegoats, you'll turn to the next drastic measure. And the concern for me is, if you're willing to take such drastic measures with your own body, because you don't regard your own body as belonging to God, what will be the next thing? What's the next step? Some might hear all this and they might say, Garrett, I think you're conflating things that are not related. But I don't think I am. I don't think I am. We're talking reducing farming output in some places by 30%. In the Netherlands, by 30%. And then you start reading the stats on how many people are turning to sterilization voluntarily as their form of birth control. And again, that stat comes up of about 30%. And you look at the push from the people with all of the money and the rhetoric and what they're funding in the way of research, in the way of public awareness and policy. And the same themes crop up again and again. I'll put a small plug in here for George Grant's excellent book, Killer Angel, the biography of Margaret Sanger. Look at the founder of Planned Parenthood. Look at her statements. Look at her life. Look at the influence, the outsized influence she had on other intellectuals she cavorted with. Men like H.G. Wells, actually, as a matter of fact. Look at the outsized influence on the eugenics movement that she had, both directly and indirectly, through the intellectuals she persuaded. It wasn't just abortion she wanted. She wanted to totally abolish the nuclear family. And she was very interested in socialism and communism and witchcraft. You think I'm making these things up, but I'm not. There's a satanic quality to the campaign being waged against civilization. There's a satanic quality to these comprehensive efforts to save the planet, not for us and our descendants, but from us and our descendants. There's a satanic quality to regarding man as the enemy. And if you just turn that around, for the Christian, we should ask, who is the enemy of man? Who is the enemy of our souls? Man is regarded as an enemy? That sounds satanic, especially when that's in general. You're going to lead off your framing of the problem with the Mississippi River, with Native American mythology, give no account whatsoever 
for how Christianity has driven our efforts at harnessing these rivers towards the end of human flourishing. Again, I say there is a satanic quality to the push. So then the Christian might look at all this and they might say, well, then what do we do, right? What do we do? The Christian as well (laughs) is thinking in terms of the impending end of the world and the apocalypse and Armageddon. And God only knows the day and the hour when Christ will come again. We don't know. We can say all these signs seem to be prophecies being fulfilled right before our eyes, and so it won't be long now. But read the Forge of Christendom. Uh, A thousand years ago, Europe was just sure, Christian Europe was just sure Christ was about to come back a second time. And they also thought that a whole lot of prophecies were being fulfilled before their eyes. And they looked at what the Vikings were doing. They looked at what the Muslims were doing from the South and from the North. Christian civilization in Europe was under assault, under attack. And yet that was not the end. This may not be the end either. And even if it is, we need to be clear-headed and not deceived. We need to be students of God's word, first and foremost, but also conversant with the truth, not drunk on our emotions, not drunk on positivism and fatalism, not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. And yes, let every one of you Speak the truth to his neighbor. The Lord is at hand. Tell the truth. If this is the end, let God find us busy with the business of the kingdom. God hasn't changed. If this is the end, well, even so, come Lord Jesus. I'm not going to stop going to work and sell all of our household possessions and have my family live under a bridge somewhere and just wait. Okay, guys, any minute now. You ready? No, that's not responsible. But in the meantime, if decisions need to be made together with the community around us, and if we are supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, you don't leave everything you know about God and about man's nature and the nature of the created order at home. You do that and you have thereby deprived the public good, as Oz Guinness explains in A Free People's Suicide. To say that our faith, our convictions, our private matters, is by turn, consequently, to say we are depriving our neighbor of the benefit, of virtue, of integrity, of goodness, of righteousness, of wisdom. That is not loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. But the whole counsel of God has to be brought to bear. We have to recognize what we are dealing with. We have to be bold. We have to know the truth. We have to speak the truth. We have to act in accordance with the truth. We do that, and whether Jesus is coming back next week or next month or in 10 years or in a thousand years, it matters not to us. Let him find us ready and busy and investing what he has entrusted to us faithfully, diligently, confidently. He has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or some translations say, of self-control. To what end? Self-control to the end of giving ourselves over to Satanists? God forbid. 
self-control to the end of being conformed to a pagan pattern? God forbid. Paul says we must no longer walk in the way that the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. But the contrast there must be, you need to have a productive mind and you have to cultivate a productive mind and work diligently and speak carefully and clearly with gentleness and respect. Sure, absolutely, but no less clearly for being gentle and respectful. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. I got to (laughs) run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. 